0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the On Point Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Noah McKay. Now, Noah McKay is an alumnus of NCFCA. He was a champion-level LDR in high school. In 2016, Noah became a regional LD debate champion and placed in the top 10 nationally. The following year, he went undefeated at the Wenham, Massachusetts National Open, winning the final round 5-0, and shortly thereafter placed second at the national championship after achieving a perfect preliminary record. During his high school debate career, Noah competed in Lincoln-Douglas debate, moot court, and a wide variety of speech events. He has been coaching and judging LD since 2017, which is a pretty long time. I first discovered Noah by seeing this article that he wrote recently, or I guess not recently, it was a couple months back. It was an article discussing the new uh, NCFCA resolution about rationalism and empiricism. And uh, ever since I saw that article, I decided that I wanted to have him on the show, So I'm finally glad that he was able to come on here and be able to share his insights as a recent PhD student, or you got your PhD, so a PhD diploma holder. I'm not sure the official title, but-
1: Yeah, well, I actually don't. Yeah, I don't have the PhD yet. I'm studying right now to acquire the PhD. Yeah, I'm a student at Purdue University in
0: Indiana. Okay, I misheard you then. Um, So soon to be called doctor. Um, but for now, I'll just call you Noah. So, uh, again, thank you for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Great. So before we jump right into like the deep philosophical side of rationalism and empiricism, I have a, a fairly deep question of my own. Uh, so maybe think about it a little bit before you answer. But uh, what's your favorite ice cream? Ice cream flavor?
1: My favorite ice cream flavor is mint chocolate chip.
0: Oh, me too. Me too. So we we already have something in common. I know this is going to be a great conversation. Yeah, great. Um, I also have like I, I have a a couple of other questions. So like if if your house was on fire and like your family was already out of the house, um, the money's already out, the pictures are already out. What are like two or three things that you would run into the house to grab?
1: Nothing at that point. If my family was out, I, I'd be a bad decision. I think to run back inside. But if I were to run back inside to grab anything. If I experienced a lapse in judgment, I would probably grab my laptop because half of everything I've ever written is on that laptop. So it would be difficult to start again from scratch.
0: <laughs> That's a great point. I would likely do the same. Um, and since we're going to be talking about philosophy a lot today, I'd figure it'd be right to ask you who your favorite philosopher is and why.
1: That's a really difficult question. Um One of my favorite philosophers is Peter van Inwagen. Uh, He's Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, He's one of my favorites, partly because I think the topics he writes about are really interesting, and partly because I admire the way that he writes philosophy. He tackles some really abstract, really technical problems, but does it in a way that's clear and accessible. Um, Some others... Some others I like are uh, Alvin Plantinga, uh, Fred Dretzky. He's a philosopher of biology who's also, I admire him for some of the same reasons. He's a really clear writer. And yeah, I could could give you a longer list, but those are uh, the top three that come to mind right now.
0: Yeah. So in terms of like branches of philosophy, is there any particular branch of philosophy that you could just spend all day reading about? I'm sure you could probably spend all day reading about any type of philosophy, but if there was one in particular that you could just uh, only choose to read for the rest of your life, I guess, like, what would that be? That's a difficult question.
1: It'd probably be either, well, I could say philosophy of religion. But that would be okay. cheating a little bit because You're philosophy right. of philosophy of religion is so broad. You can do any kind of philosophy, and as long as you've related it to religiously significant questions, then it counts as philosophy of religion. So if I were to pick a more discrete branch of philosophy, I'd probably say epistemology, which is the, the study of knowledge and rational belief, which, yeah. as it happens, is the branch that— this year's resolution falls under
0: yeah it happens to fall on I guess like your favorite would it be your favorite or one of the ones that you like the most and uh, the philosophy of epistemology has definitely intrigued me I remember uh, first time I read Descartes, I was just kind of like mind-boggled because I've never thought of the idea that uh, is there such thing as reality and um, I think we're going to be touching on that, or at least the epistemology side of philosophy a bit more today, um, discussing rationalism and empiricism. Um, but before we jump right in, I'm kind of curious to hear what made you decide that you wanted to get a PhD in philosophy? Um, I know like a lot of people sometimes refer to getting a PhD in philosophy or studying philosophy is, is kind of like... Like, why would you do that? It's like, there's not much you can do with a PhD in philosophy. Um, But like, what do you plan on doing with a PhD in philosophy?
1: Well, I plan to teach and write philosophy professionally. Um, Mm -hmm. that's, That's the career objective I'm aiming for. But I can give you some more details about why I got into philosophy. Sure, go ahead. It really happened because I had lots of questions of a religious nature when i was in high school and when i went looking for answers to these questions i found that analytic philosophers gave what i thought were by far the best answers and analytic philosophy is a, a particular tradition in philosophy uh, that goes back to well it's actually a bit difficult to, to demarcate analytic philosophy exactly but it's a tradition in philosophy in the English speaking world. So primarily England and the United States that started around uh, the end of the 19th, early 20th century. And analytic philosophers are famous for putting a really, really heavy emphasis on clarity and careful argumentative analysis. And so analytic philosophy gives gives us the tools to make our questions as clear and precise as we can possibly make them, and then offer answers to those questions that are correspondingly clear and precise. So I mostly study analytic philosophy because I want to be able to ask clear and precise questions and offer clear and precise answers. The subject matter, though, of analytic philosophy also strikes me as important. So analytic philosophers ask questions like, um, is there a God? If there's a God... Precisely, what does that mean? What are the the necessary and sufficient conditions of being would have to satisfy in order to be God? Uh, Are there objective moral values? If so, what exactly does it mean for a moral value to be objective? Um, Is it possible that our moral judgments could still have content, even if there are no objective moral values? And things like that. So, So analytic philosophers ask lots of important questions, I think they have a bad reputation for also asking lots of questions that are at least seemingly unimportant. Um, and that is a temptation that you have to avoid. Uh, so when I, when I write philosophy, sometimes I will talk about really minute details or I will engage in debates about technical minutiae, but only if I can clearly connect it to a question uh, that's that's much more important. So I recently had a paper published where I take on a very niche, very technical argument in philosophy of science and apply some concepts from probability theory and confirmation theory. It's a really technical paper. The average person likely isn't going to understand or care about the argument I'm presenting there. But uh, I made the argument anyway because it's connected to um, some really, really important questions about how we're able to have knowledge of everyday things, and so uh, I think I think analytic philosophy ultimately is a really excellent tool for answering important questions. It's just it's sometimes a little bit difficult from the outside to see why it's important.
0: Yeah, and absolutely.
1: for any and for anyone listening who's considering majoring in philosophy, uh, actually, philosophy majors have a higher median salary five years out from graduation than degree holders from any other field in the humanities. In fact, philosophy majors outdo business majors in terms of salary five years out from graduation. So the idea that you're not going to make any money with a philosophy degree is just a myth. Philosophy teaches you all sorts of really employable skills like how to write, how to listen well, how to think clearly, how to read and so on and so forth. And those are skills that, that employers are always looking for. So,
0: Wow. I guess myth busted because I always thought that there wasn't really much you could do with the philosophy degree, but that's interesting. Thank you for sharing that statistic. I learned something new. Um, do you think that since you embarked on your philosophy degree trail, do you think that you ended up getting more answers that you posed to yourself in high school, as you mentioned?
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, let me think of some in particular. So, uh, one question I had was, is there any any legitimacy to... Well, okay, so uh, the problem of evil bothered me a lot. still bothers me occasionally, but it bothered me a lot when I was younger. The problem of evil roughly goes like this. There are lots of different ways to present it, but here's one way. Uh, The universe doesn't, at first glance, strike us as the sort of universe we would expect a perfectly benevolent and all-powerful God to create. It's full of horrendous evil and suffering that seems difficult to reconcile with the existence of a supremely loving creator. Uh, One response that theologians and philosophers have offered for, for ages, for millennia, to this problem is, well, God is infinitely wiser than any other being in existence, and he's much, much wiser than we are, and he likely is privy to lots of information that we have no access to. So, for all we know, God has reasons to permit these horrendous evils that we aren't able to grasp. And the mere fact that we haven't been able to think of some reasons that would justify God in permitting these evils doesn't mean that there are no such reasons. In fact, given our finitude, uh, given our, you might say, uh, epistemic limitedness relative to God, it's not at all surprising that we aren't able to grasp what God's reasons are for permitting evil. I used to think that sort of answer was just a cop out. It was just an attempt to avoid the problem rather than solve it. But since then, uh, I've studied a lot of philosophy and a lot of epistemology in particular, and I've decided that that answer is actually satisfactory. There are lots of there are lots of good reasons to opt for that solution to the problem. Well, um, in fact, I'm now studying under. A philosopher named Michael Bergman at purdue and he's he's one of the main advocates of this approach to the problem of evil um so yeah that's that's just one example of how philosophy has uh has shaped my
0: views over time yeah that's a that's an, that's an interesting point um but without further ado and uh, I think I know you pretty well now uh, I think that we should get into rationalism and empiricism so why not give me a little like overview of like what rationalism and empiricism are, um, perhaps just like general definitionally, and then maybe go more in depth and perhaps discuss how rationalism and empiricism has kind of like evolved or like the debate or, or surrounding these two epistemological ideas has evolved over time. Different perspectives that people have chimed in. Um, so I guess just start off by. What is rationalism and empiricism?
1: Well, that's actually a really hard question to answer, harder than you might think. Uh, But broadly, rationalism and empiricism are names for two schools of thought about the relationship between reason, experience, and knowledge that emerged uh, at the end of the 17th and beginning of the 18th centuries in Europe. The rationalists, the most important of whom, historically speaking, are René Descartes and Gottfried Leibniz, uh, and also another guy named Baruch Spinoza, is usually classified among the rationalists, but he doesn't, uh, his philosophy is rationalist in character, uh, but he doesn't do as much to defend rationalism as Descartes and Leibniz do. The rationalists believed that some of what we know is independent of experience. We know some things even though we didn't learn them by experiencing the world. The empiricists, uh, the most important of whom were probably David Hume and uh, George Berkeley. There are others too. Hold on. There's one other... There's one other from the modern... Ah, yes, the beloved John Locke, right? Who we talk about every year. Um, He actually wrote a lot about epistemology. He wrote more about epistemology than he did about political philosophy. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, believe it or not. His uh, essay on the human understanding is longer than the two treatises of government. So, hmm. anyway... So Locke and Hume made the opposite argument. They said, no, everything we know is based on our experience. There is nothing we know that we didn't learn by experiencing the world. That's just a really rough characterization, um, but it, it captures the main point of disagreement. That debate mo- is, is mostly contained within the 17th, 18th and maybe early 19th centuries, uh, the terms rationalism and empiricism are still used sometimes, and empiricism was used, that term was used a lot in the 20th century, uh, because by the beginning of the 20th century, most philosophers in England and in the United States had pretty much concluded that Hume and Locke won the argument, that empiricism was true. And so much of the 20th century was spent trying to construct a version of Hume and Locke's views about epistemology that was more detailed and robust and more in consonance with modern science. Um, It's only really at the, the end of the 20th century that rationalism started to emerge as a viable option again. In philosophy. Prior to the 1970s, um, there were practically no philosophers who identified themselves as rationalists. Uh, But close to the end of the 20th century, some philosophers like Noam Chomsky and uh, Peter Carruthers and others started to present new arguments based on new developments in cognitive science that, in fact, even though everyone thought for the longest time that Hume and Locke had won the argument, it turns out that Descartes and Leibniz were right after all, that the science of the brain and the science of human cognition is showing that human beings do in fact have lots of knowledge built in. And so, although originally this debate centered more around philosophical arguments, uh, now the argument is largely a scientific one. The argument is now largely focused on what the data from cognitive science show about how human beings learn.
0: Wow, that's a good summary. Um, So towards the end there, you brought up how these ideas and knowledge are kind of ingrained, or it's with us already. And that would go with like the innate knowledge theory, right? Yes.
1: I think that's the best way to characterize rationalism. Rationalism is best seen as the view that some of our knowledge is innate. It's built in, right? Now, that doesn't necessarily yeah. mean we have it from birth, right? Babies don't come out of the womb knowing much of anything. Um, but there is a sense in which Even some knowledge that we acquire as we develop, uh, arguably, uh, we don't have it when we're born, but we also don't learn it. It just comes to us in the natural course of cognitive development. So that's the kind of innateness that Peter Carruthers, who I mentioned a moment ago, defends. He's got a book titled Human Knowledge and Human Nature, in which he argues... Human beings are biologically hardwired to know certain things. Um, so, you come to know, for example, how to interpret other people's facial expressions and how to predict other people's actions uh, in much the same way that you come to grow longer limbs and your. Uh, musculature and hand-eye coordination improves as you get older. It just happens naturally. Uh, It's not like you go out and perform a bunch of experiments and learn how human psychology works just on the basis of your experience. Rather, you have natural, built-in expectations about how people behave. um, And those expectations come to light through natural childhood development.
0: Yeah, I think you kind of answered the question already, but would the rationalists believe that these uh, innate ideas that you have within yourselves, th- would those ideas make themselves manifest throughout the course of your lives? Um, and they would argue that that's something that's innate to the person's being instead of something that is empirically uh, achieved because of their experiences in their life. Is that something that the rationalist, or at least um, the rationalists from the perspective that you are arguing would say?
1: Yes, that's actually a pretty good summary of what rationalism is.
0: And that goes, I, I might be mistaken with the philosopher, I'm not too well acquainted, but that's kind of like what Plato's idea was, that we have like this essence in us that already, I'm not sure if it's Plato, um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but we have like this essence in us that already has all of these ideas, like it, it just manifests itself as our life unfolds. Is that Kind of like what Plato was arguing, or I could yeah. be really wrong. Yeah, so
1: Plato's view is actually pretty pretty radical, but it might be fun to talk about anyway. So in one of his dialogues, the Phaedo, Plato develops what ancient uh, historians of ancient philosophy call his theory of recollection. And this is Plato's theory about how it is that we learn. Because Plato asks a question. He asks, well... If you want to know something, you already have to know what it is that you want to know. Um, If I want to know things about giraffes, well, I must already have some notion of a giraffe, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to pick out what it is that I want to learn about. And so Plato says, we must already have some knowledge built into us about everything in the world. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to learn about it. And so Plato's... Uh, Plato's theory is that human beings have immaterial souls, and these souls actually pre-exist our bodies. So before you receive a body, you actually dwell in this heavenly realm with what he calls the forms. Uh, it's a little bit tough to explain what the forms are, but they're like uh, they're like properties. They're like things in general. So, you know, there are lots of red things in the world, but then there's also the thing that they all have in common, redness. So redness is a property that's exemplified by multiple different things. It's almost as if redness is in multiple places at once. And so Plato says, well, what is redness? Uh, it's a form, right? It's something that exists in the realm of forms and objects are red in virtue of participating in the form of red. And there are also forms for white and forms for big and small and the form of beauty and the form of the good. Those two are really important for Plato. And so before we're embodied, Plato thinks our soul is interacting with the forms and it has knowledge of the forms through direct acquaintance. So when we have a body, uh, we actually forget everything that we learned about the forms And when we learn during our earthly lives, what we're really doing is remembering what we already knew about the forms. Our experience of the world triggers knowledge uh, that we had in our previous disembodied life. It brings it to consciousness, right? And that's actually a good way, even though most rationalists wouldn't subscribe to Plato's metaphysics, right? They're not going to tell a story that extravagant about where knowledge comes from, but they would make a similar claim about the relationship between experience and knowledge. Uh, Like Leibniz makes this point in his new essays on the human understanding. He says, yes, if you never had any experiences, you wouldn't know anything but it's not because everything you know is learned from experience. It's simply because experiences of a certain kind are necessary to trigger the innate knowledge that you already have, to bring it to consciousness. So here's an example that Leibniz might give and that rationalists broadly would would subscribe to. Uh, Leibniz thinks that experience can't possibly teach us about necessary truths. A necessary truth is a truth that uh, couldn't possibly have been false. It's a truth that holds everywhere at all times, no matter what. So here's an example of a necessary truth. Every triangle has interior angles that add up to 180 degrees, right? That's a necessary truth because it's a truth about all triangles everywhere. And in fact, it's a truth about any possible triangle. It's not even possible for there to be a triangle without interior angles that add up to 180 degrees. Now, Leibniz asks, how could we learn this through experience? Well, we can't, because experience can only, only tell you that this or that triangle has interior angles that add up to 180 degrees. Or all the triangles you've observed have angles that add up to 180 degrees. Or all the triangles in this world have angles that add up to 180 degrees. It couldn't tell you that absolutely all triangles must have angles that add up to 180 degrees no matter what. Uh, So Leibniz doesn't think we can learn that fact through experience, but he does acknowledge that experience can help us along. So famously, the Greek mathematician who first, well, maybe not, who first proved this. But the first Greek mathematician that we know of who proved this fact about triangles was Euclid. And uh, Euclid actually used diagrams in his book, The Elements, to prove all sorts of interesting facts about shapes, including triangles. And so Leibniz would say, the diagrams are obviously, they're physical pictures, right? And when you're learning geometry, we've all had this experience, um, well, some of you might not have, but you're going too soon if you're listening to this podcast. Uh, when you learn geometry, it's much, much easier if you learn it through pictures. In fact, it might only be possible to learn it by using pictures. Uh, but Leibniz would say those pictures aren't teaching you geometry, really. You already know geometry innately. Uh, your interaction with those diagrams is simply bringing that knowledge to the fore. It's making you conscious of what you already implicitly knew about triangles. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. Um, But perhaps I'm mischaracterizing the rationalist argument a little bit. So would the rationalist, or excuse me, to me it seems as if it's very easy for the empiricist side of the debate to just say that empiricism is a prerequisite in order to obtain things that some rationalists would say are only necessary through rationalism. But triggered through empiricism. So can't the empiricists just say that empiricism is necessary to achieve that and so it can be empirically flipped? And if that's the case, then how is a debate won, would you say? Like what does the debate ultimately come down to? Is it like a conflict? How is a debate in Lincoln-Douglas with this resolution resolved if the arguments devolve into a sort of chicken before the egg type debate? Excellent
1: question. So, empiricism is actually a pretty strong claim. It's the claim not only that experience is necessary for everything that we know, but that everything we know comes entirely from experience, right? So those are two different claims. uh, Because rationalists are happy to acknowledge that much of what we know comes from experience, and perhaps all of what we know is dependent, at least in some way, on experience. The rationalist claim is that experience alone can't account for everything we know, right? So the empiricist uh, has to hold the opposite. The empiricist has to argue that experience on its own accounts for everything that we know, that all of the information contained in our knowledge of the world is information that we originally acquired through experience. The rationalist is gonna say, obviously the information we acquire through experience is important, but that's not how all of the information we have access to got there, right? Some of the information was encoded in us the whole time. So this is, this is a genuine conflict. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I think this is the best. There, there are other ways to define the conflict between rationalism and empiricism than the one I'm explaining here. Uh, but the reason I think this is the best characterization is because it makes the conflict clear, right? The empiricist is saying all knowledge comes from experience, and the rationalist is saying no, some knowledge is independent of experience. Uh, if any of you have have you studied Aristotle's square of opposition, perchance?
0: Um, I don't believe so.
1: No? Okay, well, uh, some of your listeners might have. I don't know why, for some reason, homeschoolers end up studying Aristotle's square of opposition a lot. Which, uh, But anyway, in, in Aristotelian logic, uh, if you say, all Ps are Qs, and you say some p's are not q's those are what are called contradictories it means one of those statements must be true and one of them must be false there is no in between they're totally incompatible right all p's are q's and some p's are not q's those are contradictories now we can state rationalism and empiricism uh in sentences with those forms so Empiricism would be the view that all knowledge comes from experience, and rationalism would be the view that some knowledge is independent of experience. If they're formulated that way, they're contradictories, right? One of them has to be true, and one of them has to be false, which means uh, if you frame the debate that way, you cannot run a balanced negative this year. I know that's what most, most negatives want to opt for, but you actually, that's not a viable strategy, in my view, because if you are the negative and you stand up and say, listen, it's true that some of our knowledge is independent of experience. It's true that some of our knowledge comes from reason alone, but also lots of our knowledge comes from experience, and we wouldn't have nearly as much knowledge as we in fact have if we didn't depend on our experiences. If you say that, you're just a rationalist. That's not empiricism, right? Uh, empiricism is the stronger claim that no, everything you know you learned through, through experience.
0: Okay, that's really interesting. Um, for some reason, I've always had like this preconception that uh, rationalism is that, um, no, I, I thought that they overlapped, but that rationalism believed that um, most knowledge is achieved through reason, um, which would be sort of correct. But then also that empiricism would believe that knowledge is also gained through rationalism. Um, But as you mentioned, empiricists believe that it's through experience alone. So here's where things... Go down this... What's that?
1: Oh, I just want to say that what you said right there, this
0: is where things get a little bit
1: tricky. Uh, Now, first of all, it's actually... It's not true that rationalists claim that most of our knowledge comes from reason. In fact, there's a passage in his new essays where Leibniz says... We're all empiricists three-fourths of the time. So Leibniz actually thinks that most of our knowledge comes from experience. He's just at pains to show that not all of our knowledge comes from experience. Um, Now, rationalists will sometimes say something similar, which is that uh, the best kinds of knowledge or the most important kinds of knowledge come through reason rather than experience. Uh, So examples might be mathematical knowledge or knowledge of the laws of logic or knowledge of moral values and duties. That's a big one. Uh, The rationalists argue, well, experience can't tell you what's right and wrong because rightness and wrongness aren't physical properties, right? They're not things out there in the world that you could measure with scientific instruments, So there's no way you're ever going to learn them through experience. So you must know them through reason. Uh, So they would say that the most important, maybe the most important things we can have knowledge about can only be known through reason. Uh, But they won't say that all or most of the things that we know come through reason. Now on the flip side, I'll say this one last thing and then I'll, I'll let you keep going. An empiricist doesn't have to deny the importance of reason. Obviously, we know some things through reasoning. That's not controversial. What the empiricist has to do is show that reasoning itself actually depends on experience. And this is one of the things that Hume does in his Enquiries on the Human Understanding. Hume tries to explain how uh, we actually learn to engage in reasoning through experience. He says, all our reasoning is based on cause and effect relationships, right? We draw inferences, rational inferences, based on our knowledge of what causes what. But, he says, we learn about cause and effect relationships through experience, through observation. So, everything we know on the basis of reason, the empiricist would say, is really, at bottom, right, in the end, based entirely on experience,
0: So to kind of like go down this rabbit hole, I guess like as fast as possible, I don't want to waste too much time on it, but would empiricists, of course this is NCFCA debate, so uh, but like empiricists as um, like the philosophical standpoint, would empiricists essentially like deny the idea of God as a concept?
1: Excellent question.
0: Most of them have
1: historically speaking, Yes, not all of them, but most of them. So in his enquiry on the human understanding, Hume says all of our ideas come from experience. So if we have any ideas that couldn't have come from experience, then we have to deny that those ideas have any meaning, right? If I can't trace an idea back to experience, then it's illusory. It's a deception, right? It's nonsense. So if we found out that our concept of God can't be traced back to our experiences of the world, we would have to toss it out. Now, Hume didn't make that explicit argument. Hume didn't say that our, that our idea of God is one of those ideas. In fact, there's a passage in the Enquiry where he suggests that there is actually a way that we could form a coherent idea of a perfect being. But other empiricists later took this idea of Hume's and sort of ran with it. Um, the logical empiricists of the twentieth century, also they're also known as the logical positivists. um, they they saw themselves as carrying out Hume's project to a greater extent and in more detail. And most of them said, yes, all of our all of our words get their meanings from experience. This is a very rough characterization, but they basically said, all of our, Words get their meanings from sense experience, and since you can't have a sensory experience of God or of a non-physical being, uh, the word "God" is just meaningless nonsense, right? The idea of God actually doesn't have any content. Now that was a really, really radical view. Um, logical empiricism is is pretty much dead. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know of anyone, any philosopher alive today who would call themselves a logical empiricist, of at least in the old style. Um, so there, there are empiricists now who would say, yes, we're empiricists, but we also think that religious concepts like the concept of God are meaningful. They do have content. Um, so there could be a God if empiricism is true. The question is, how could we know that there's a God? And, uh, that might be a little bit of a harder question for an empiricist to answer than a rationalist,
0: but it, it depends on yeah. who you ask. Now, to me, with that established, it sounds like this resolution is very rationalist-weighted. Um, I'm not sure if you want to weigh in on that, but how is it possible for an empiricist uh, person debating the empiricist side of this resolution to win? Um, and also, like, what would be the the best or fairest way to frame the round in order to have an actually effective debate
1: yeah um i tend to agree with you i think the resolution is weighted a little bit toward the affirmative i don't think that's because rationalism is more congenial to christianity actually um i don't think that the Bible, for example, comes down one way or the other on rationalism or empiricism. In fact, I don't think it even suggests that one of them is true and the other one false. Um, There are theological problems with empiricism, but they're pretty technical problems, and they're almost certainly not going to come up in a debate round. Um, Those issues are really, I I think they're a bit too abstract to be helpful. So I don't, I don't, expect any debaters to defend the affirmative position for theological reasons Um, Mm -hmm. the real the real tough part for the negative is just that it really is hard to explain how we know some things through experience so one example that i mentioned earlier is moral values right um right but there are ways for empiricists to tackle these challenges Uh, i'll just give you one example so there are lots of empiricists about morality they do think we can know moral truths on the basis of experience and their argument goes something like this Uh, we know moral principles on the basis of the moral emotions emotions like anger and compassion and so on and so forth uh and actually human beings who are unable to experience those emotions uh, in particular the emotion of empathy have a really really difficult time grasping moral truths Uh, that's why psychopaths those are people who who are technically a psychopath is someone who is incapable of feeling the emotion of empathy or they don't feel it to nearly this uh the standard extent those people uh have a very hard time abiding by moral norms or even understanding moral norms. And these empiricists will point out, yeah, that's because the emotion of empathy is actually the way that we know that some actions are right and some actions are wrong. Uh, And this doesn't require you to be a subjectivist. By the way, this is a pretty popular view even among moral objectivists, in analytic philosophy. There's a moral philosopher named William Fitzpatrick at the University of Rochester who makes exactly this argument. He says, we learn about moral values uh, by encountering the world emotionally. And by the way, uh, that's actually consonant with scripture in some places, right? Paul says the law of God is written on the human heart. And in scripture, the heart is the name for the seat of the emotions. So it seems like Paul is actually suggesting, maybe suggesting a little bit, that our knowledge of God's law is is based on emotion to at least some extent. Um, so mm. the answer is, if you're the negative, you just have to be creative. There are solutions to all of these problems. Uh, you just got to dig for them. Um, here's one other advantage you have as the negative. We are living in an age when... Artificial intelligence is developing very, very rapidly, and I can't go into this in a lot of detail right now. Uh, but if you want my if you want my more detailed take on this, uh, you can take a look at the NCFCa source book from Ethos Debate this year. I've got a case in that source book where I talk about this, but it turns out that. Uh, Our best artificial intelligences, like ChatGPT, um, are really empiricist machines. Um, They learn purely through experience. They begin as uh, blank slates, so to speak. That's, That's a term that Locke used when he was explaining his version of empiricism. He said, empiricism is the view that the human mind is a blank sheet of paper, and that everything written on the mind is written by experience. Uh, that's actually how deep convolutional neural networks, which is the kind of artificial intelligence model uh, that's used to build something like ChatGPT, that's actually how they're structured. Uh, they start out knowing nothing. Uh, they're actually, well, again, I can't go into too much detail, Uh Take a look at that source book if you want the details or just Google this. There are some pretty good explanations online about how neural networks work. Uh, But they start out with basically no knowledge at all. And then just by feeding them experiences, we can teach them to do almost anything. We can teach them to play chess. We can teach them to drive cars. We can teach them to distinguish dogs from cats. It just takes a bunch of trial and error. They just have to try and fail many, many thousands sometimes millions of times, and they'll eventually learn. Um, So you, as the negative, have, have an advantage because there's all this emerging technology that all your judges are gonna know about that pretty strongly suggests empiricism is at least possible. It's at least possible that the human brain is structured in such a way that we're able to learn everything we need to learn to get around in the world just through experience. Uh, Because these neural networks are modeled on the human brain. That's why they're called neural networks. Uh, They're computers that imitate uh, the ways that neurons work in the brain.
0: So, yeah. I I don't want to get into too much detail because you're already running short on time. But wouldn't a big problem with that be um, the problem that artificial intelligence doesn't have a moral basis?
1: Well... That's, that's disputable. You can teach a neural network to at least act as if it has moral values. So if you just type in chat G, into ChatGPT, should I do X where X is something really like horrifically morally wrong? It'll say, no, don't do that. Huh. Um, because it's learned by interacting with humans uh, what our moral norms are. I, I use the word learned there in a broad sense. right? I don't think that ChatGPT is conscious or literally has a mind. Um, but metaphorically speaking, yes, an artificial intelligence can learn moral norms.
0: Yeah. Well, as we're starting to wrap up here, we're running short on time, but I'll ask you for people who are still interested in learning more. What are some philosophers or I guess, um, maybe like some books or like, what would you suggest, uh, people who are interested in taking their knowledge about rationalism and and empiricism to the next level? What resources or philosophers would you recommend for them to check out?
1: Um, The best resource on this resolution is a Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article titled, Rationalism Versus Empiricism. That's written by uh, Peter Markey and M. Falescu. They're both philosophers at the University of Missouri, Columbia. Um, I'm not even gonna mention any other resources because that one is the best by far. So if you're gonna read anything, you should read that. Because it's an encyclopedia article, it's got a lot of breadth, right? You're going to learn lots and lots of things by reading that article, and they've got a pretty extensive bibliography. So if there are any arguments in that article that seem interesting to you, you can just look at the in-text citations, and that'll tell you what books or articles to read if you want more details about those arguments. Um, So that's where I would go first, definitely.
0: Yep, and of course, check out... Noah's blog on ethos and um, so yeah so this is a good episode I'd say I definitely learned a lot and um, hopefully this episode answered any questions listeners may have or perhaps it made them have more questions and if so even better go we fill your mind with um, answers to those questions as you continue on your journey to research about rationalism and empiricism
1: yeah my pleasure thanks for having me